By 2021, it's estimated that cybercrime will cost the world $6 trillion a year. The enemy is growing in sophistication. Now, beyond discovering passwords or getting you to click on nefarious links, criminals are using artificial intelligence to spot weakness in a company's system. Here's Paul Hoare from the UK National Crime Agency. Cyber criminals are hugely flexible, hugely adaptive. If you leave a hole, they will find it. We've got to be as adaptive and as quick to respond as, as the criminal groups always have been. Some say what we should really do is leave ourselves totally open to attack. There's a famous old saying in computer security, and indeed all forms of security, that goes back to military theory in the 1800s, I think, that your security should continue to be secure even in the face of an enemy who knows everything about it. If you cannot match that bar, then you have a fundamental problem. Is it really possible? Yes. Alec is talking about the Kirchhoff principle. My name's Alec Muffet. I'm a software engineer and security consultant stroke expert. I'm a member of the Security and Privacy Executive of the British Computer Society, a member of the Board of Directors of the Open Rights Group, and General Purpose Security Evangelist. August Kirchhoff was a Dutch cryptographer in the 19th century. He said everything about a system can be public, except for the key to the system. An American mathematician got hold of the idea and tweaked it slightly to add this. Claude Shannon said, look, the enemy is going to get into your systems, no matter what. Be able to defend it anyways. Nowadays, many large corporates are actually doing this, leaving themselves open and allowing the hackers to come to them. One of the greatest changes in innovations that I've seen in information security in the last decade is the invention of bug bounty programs, which is a terrifying concept for some organizations, literally inviting people to hack you and say you will give them money, a small payment, if they find anything interesting. The value proposition of a bug bounty program is that people will bring you the vulnerabilities that you have managed to put into your website, the places where you could be hacked, before anyone else does. Alec calls it radical transparency. There are thousands of companies, the likes of all of the big social networks, yes, quite a lot of the banks, yes. If you go visiting various bug bounty providers and look through the lists of enterprises for whom they run services, bug bounty programs, you will see thousands of very recognizable names. It's strange, though, because I sometimes talk to folk in government and also industry who consider this a curious concept and are trepidatious. The rest of industry, however, are embracing this, stopping being scared of security and of doing it yourself and of fixing your website and instead encouraging people to find the flaws and bring them to you. Would you let a thief into your house so she might tell you which windows you haven't locked? Leaving yourself open to attack, radical transparency. Why would we do this? What are the risks? And what's more, why should corporate share any of their sensitive information at all? Welcome to Episode 3 of Euromoney's Treasury and Turbulence, The Kirkhoff Principle. This podcast is supported by City Treasury and Trade Solutions. With experts in 98 countries around the world, City is uniquely able to give advice and solutions to global companies to help them manage their international trade and financial flows in this time of deep uncertainty and change. Let's get one thing straight. Corporates large enough for a treasurer are getting hacked all the time. John T. Chambers, the former CEO of Cisco, 
famously said there are two types of companies, those who know they have been hacked and those who don't know they have been hacked. Some people say this is because we're stuck with old systems that we're constantly having to fix. That means if a company were to leave itself open, there's the prospect that with old systems, it wouldn't actually know what it was leaving open. Take Swift. It's used by every bank. It's integral to payment systems around the world. A printer using the Swift system was famously hacked a few years ago. Here's Chris Gibson. He currently works as the Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, at the Orwell Group. Previously, he built and ran CERT UK, the umbrella organization for the government's cybersecurity program. Places I worked in the past have had awful legacy architecture. I mean, just lots and lots of different systems. Bring another system in, and we bolt the two together, and we make them work. And we make them work with the electronic equivalent of duct tape and string and sealing wax sometimes. When they're running fine, they're running fine. But as soon as there's a hiccup or something changes, those systems are so old, the systems are not well understood. The consultants, the people who built them, have probably moved on a long time ago, 20, 30 years ago, some of these things, some of especially some of the core legacy. So it becomes an enormous challenge. Think RBS, some of the big banks who've had challenges recently where their systems have gone down. And it's typically because they've done something to their legacy core. They don't fully understand what they're doing because it's just too complicated nobody does. And then they're desperately trying to patch it back up again. It's very frustrating that with that legacy core and with it being so important to the financial system, we can't just turn it off and build another one. It's just not doable. Or it's incredibly difficult. And we end up patching and patching and patching and fixing and duct tape and string and elastic bands. It's just not going to work. We have to get out of that architectural debt. Chris describes how, when he was in government, opinion was divided about accepting help from outside sources. Once a hacker, how can you trust a hacker? The problem is that I'm sure lots of people have done, you know, slightly silly things in their youth and they haven't been caught and, and, and at some point it'll come back to haunt them and that's the worry. We did work very closely with these people and we found them enormously valuable. Anyone a corporate allows into its system has the ability to expose a weakness. In industry parlance, any little weakness like this is called a back door, like a physical house. An unlocked back door, anyone could come in. I know there were definitely parts of government that were very resistant to that. Um, there are a number of, I think, the Hacker House uh, gang in, in the UK which are trying to take sort of reform hackers and bring them back into the mainstream. And I, I'm full of admiration for that. And there's a bit of me that says if they've done their time, they've done their time. What, you know, why would you not hire these people? There is a significant pushback from a number of people on that. I, it, I, I wish I knew the answer. How easy is it actually to create a backdoor? Most of the time, it's not really a backdoor. It's just a vulnerability you've not patched. It's a bad password. It's, a, it's a, an old version of the software. It's people not knowing what they've got on their systems and, and not realising that those things are. So creating the backdoor is... That sounds like you're actually nefariously doing something. Again, think back to Talk Talk. You know, it's a 14-year-old boy in Northern Ireland who found a vulnerability that presumably Talk Talk hadn't found, or they'd have fixed it. So that begs the question: What what had he got that they hadn't gotten? To my understanding, nothing really. He just looked and found it. Here's a real life experience. This is a security professional speaking off the record about what happened when a person on his security team left a back door open. Someone else is reading his lines. Years and years ago, I worked for an organization that found an individual had made money off a corporate sale. It was easy to identify, because that individual had used their username and password and also business systems that had been provided by the organization. What was interesting was how easy it was to prove that they had done it. But it happened again, years later. One of the people who had been instrumental in finding this person did the same thing. 
They compromised the business systems and released information that was sensitive. They knew they would be caught because they were the ones who identified the breach the first time around. So we applied the same techniques and caught the person within hours. They knew that they would be caught, but felt that they were acting in a wider, greater interest by releasing information that was supposed to be confidential. Any person that a corporate willingly or unwillingly gives permissions and passwords to, whether that be an employee, a contractor, or a third-party provider, they're a threat to the online safety of that company. It begs the question, forget hackers. How could a company consider radical transparency when even sharing with a third-party provider can cause a hack? Hello. It's a real pleasure to be here today. My name is Jan Babiak, and uh, after spending about three decades working in the IT security risk and cybersecurity space as a practitioner uh, seeking to build defenses and working with companies all around the world, I now sit on a portfolio of boards, uh, and I should point out that my views today are my personal representation and not that of any of the companies for which I am associated. Jan also used to be in law enforcement. She was a policewoman. When you get into procurement, I mean, this has been an area of huge attention by many organizations, but sadly, not enough by others. Because you look at some of the breaches, you know, the the poster child that most everyone can quote, of course, is Target. And what a lot of people don't know is that Target system that exposed millions of people's credit card information and things like that came through their HVAC system. So the people who dealt with, you know, their refrigeration and air conditioning and things like that. We give our suppliers access to our systems because it makes things more efficient. We also give our customers access because it makes things more efficient and we get more sales. And often these are provided through third parties. And these third parties are often smaller companies that maybe don't have the budget. So unless your procurement people are really pouring over what they do, then you are probably creating breaches by creating those efficiencies. Jen also pointed us to a study done in 2016 by the company Cloud Passage. It was about the training of IT staff. Not one of the top U.S. computer science programs is ranked by U.S. News and World Report requires one single cybersecurity course in order to graduate. Three of the schools in the same top 10 didn't even offer it as an elective. That's a lot of graduates building code out there with no security training, building open backdoors into software. With all these vulnerabilities being built, one might also ask, doesn't that mean that we need more help than ever before? Here's Anthony D'Agostino from the consultancy firm Willis Towers Wilson. Yeah, in university, it's two separate things. Generally speaking, we're starting to see curriculum change a little bit. Cybersecurity has a huge skills gap. The jobs website, cybersecurityventures.com, expects 3.5 million unfilled positions in the industry by 2021. The biggest recruiters out there in schools, holding competitions for young and old to actively encourage hacking? The governments of Europe. Do you know yet what you're going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to win. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. And what got you both into cybersecurity? Like? I think security is the most artistic part of our information of computer science. 
uh, it requires you to be um, a person that think out of the box, you know? The German team has been on their laptops all morning. But now, they physically pick locks, read a napkin with an infrared flashlight, and finally crack open a metal case to find a bomb. You failed to cut the correct wires at the same time. At the same time? What? It's okay. The German team managed to win the competition anyway. Here's Bob Nowell, chairman of the board for the Cybersecurity Challenge. Yeah, so um, it's interesting. The reason I, I have a sort of an interest in what's now called cyber and have done almost forever was because back in the dark days of World War II, my mother was at Bletchley Park in Hut 6. And tell us about the Cybersecurity Challenge. So the Cybersecurity Challenge is an organisation that was set up about eight or nine years ago now, and it's a not-for-profit organisation, so the money we raise all goes into finding new talent for cybersecurity all around the world, not just the UK. Uh, there's a skills gap and the, the number of vacancies we have that really should be filled, um, and we all struggle to fill them, is huge. One reason there is a skills gap is because government, corporates and security firms aren't the only people recruiting. If a company left itself open to do penetration testing, hackers who work for the right side of the law, who are called white hats, won't be the only people there looking for bugs and testing a corporate system. The boundary between black hat and white hat, as you put it, is tricky. And we, the Cybersecurity Challenge, with some of our sponsors and some of the government departments, the Justice Department, the National Crime Agency, we run what we call intervention days for kids who are just at that bad place with their parents or guardians or carers um, to point them in what we would say is the right direction rather than the direction that they've been heading in and turn them around. And some of that is about showing them that people with equally good skills as theirs got great careers, putting them to good purposes. So you can show them that people like them from unconventional backgrounds or difficult backgrounds have made a success of things in life. And that's why Bob is a part of the effort to bring any talent they can find into the fold and create more white hats. The government is involved as well. My name is Jake Davis. I suppose the simplest word to describe me would be hacker. When I was a teenager, I was involved with hacking collectives like Anonymous and started, uh, co-founded one called Lull Security. I was arrested for it, sentenced to two years in prison. Nowadays, I work on security in general, uh, giving talks to schools, companies, sometimes governments. Uh, At the moment, I'm enjoying education. Jake says the government has two things working against its recruitment drive. Two problems with GCHQ working for them. One is you will be tied into a system where you'll be very restrictive in your creativity, your hacking ability. You'll probably get to work on some fun internal tools, but maybe politically they'll force you to go in ways you don't want to. To formalize it, I think is counterintuitive to the idea of hacking. It won't work for the hacker because they'll feel trapped in a box, and that's not what a hacker wants to feel. And it won't work for the client because it won't protect you against the weird, quirky, malicious, super effective, bizarre hacks that will end up causing you damage. If a malicious actor wants to break into your systems and they see that you're, you've hired X number of people and they have Y number of certifications, they'll look around that. They'll look for these weird and wonderful ways in. And you're better off allowing and being brave for more flamboyant, quirky, sort of uh, thinking outside the box creative hackers that might not have the certifications to come in and have a second opinion because you're far more likely to fix the core problem. Trying to control how people choose to approach hacking might not only dissuade potential candidates, 
there's a danger that it would homogenize ideas and therefore expose corporates to greater risk. You have to look at what young hackers want, especially those that go possibly get involved in some of the things that I was involved in. Young hackers, they want kudos from their peers. They want the challenge of doing the hack. And I think bug bounties are a very good way of doing that. They're certainly, for young hackers, more effective than contract work. Which brings us to Jake's second point, which many of the sources we spoke to mentioned. The GCHQ opening salary is far less than a basic living wage in the city of London. The rewards can be very high for the bad actors. The rewards are not high for those who are fighting the good fight. Being a cybersecurity professional, surely it can't be a bit like being a teacher. Like it can't be that kind of sacrifice, is it? Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Because uh, people who go in particularly to the white white hack side of this are doing it kind of out of a sense of, of, you know, patriotism or good. You know, it's like a lot of people who serve in audit functions or compliance functions, and um, they don't get the appreciation or the military. You know, the military is not a place where people are well paid either. We are so grateful as a society to be served by you know, the teachers and the military and the cybersecurity experts. And, you know, there are really unsung heroes that protect our livelihood, and we should be very grateful for them. And they are seriously underpaid for doing so. Though there might be risks in not holding bug bounty programs and welcoming cybersecurity professionals who might surprise a corporate with their creative thinking, Jan highlights the risks of the Kirchhoff principle. If it becomes a gaming issue, then you're not really getting those who have more nefarious intent. However, those groups will use those environments to learn. And sometimes they will figure out exploits, but not try to get on the board as someone who did that, but to know that, ah, they know about that, and then to go use it in in a live environment. The website HackerOne, a company that runs bug bounty programs for other companies, lists a lot of big corporate names as its clients. GM, Starbucks, the European Commission, the U.S. Department of Defense. More than 120,000 hackers work for it. And some of the top earners make more than 250,000 pounds a year. I spoke to three banks for this project. Two didn't want to be recorded, but did acknowledge they used bug bounty programs. Citibank, who did agree to be interviewed, couldn't comment on that question. I spoke to Elizabeth Petrie at Citi. She's the Director of Cyber Threat Risk Management, Previously, she worked at the FBI. While most companies have one cybersecurity department, Elizabeth's job is to oversee and challenge City on how well it's handling its cybersecurity. She's like a second check. Half of the work is really in acknowledging where those weak points are and, and trying to even assess where those weak points are within your, your um, infrastructure and then being able to prioritize those weak points because not everything can be addressed with the same number of resources. One of the things that differentiates a bank from any other kind of corporate is that it's complicated. The systems can work in our favor in that there's multiple layers a cyber attacker actually has to go through before they can achieve their end goal, be it the money or the information. You can make just as much or maybe perhaps more money by selling information that you steal versus straight up trying to transfer money outside of an institution. But conversely, I think that the attackers, because of the complexity of the system, sometimes have additional time to be able to hide and to better learn the system in the way that it 
operates before they're able to graduate to that next stage of saying, okay, now I've been able to identify exactly where my end goal <laughs> is and how, how I'm going to get to that end point. Complexity in the system is a benefit, but it's also perhaps a challenge. Elizabeth says that every morning, Citibank gets on a call with their competitors. They point out what they've seen, threats they've found. They help each other out. Different governments provide platforms to do this kind of thing. The U.K. has CISP, a platform that Chris Gibson, who you heard from earlier, helped set up. But in the U.S. and some other countries, it's siloed. There's a platform for each different kind of industry. Here's Anthony D'Agostino. That sharing of the threats that companies should be aware of. The threats, aside from some of the alleged nation states or more persistent actors who are going after targeted organizations and maybe know the techniques to really hit a bank or hit a, uh, an energy company, we don't see a lot of the cross-industry sharing between healthcare and retail, which, by the way, are being hit with the same types of techniques. Another constituent who wishes there was more sharing? The government. Here's Paul Hoare again from the National Crime Agency. Industry is really reticent about engaging with law enforcement. And it doesn't seem to matter how much education we do around it or how much information, like this podcast as well, we're encouraging people to come forward. Confidentiality, um, you're going to keep, we're going to keep it secret. We're not going to lay it out there. But that, that still doesn't seem to resonate with some parts of industry. Why do you think that is? I don't know, to tell the truth. Some companies and some sectors where our relationship is very good and, and there is an interactive flow, and there's some there aren't. It's a desert of information. Now, I think what private sector needs to understand is... When When it deals with law enforcement, the private sector gets to define what that relationship looks like. You can engage with law enforcement on your terms. We had an investigation a little little while back now. It's about a year ago now. We had something like 76 companies who've been victims of business email compromise. Those 76, they were snowflakes on the tip of the iceberg of those that were actually attempted to be infected. None of them reported any of it to law enforcement. Had one of them done so, some of the others may have been protected. I know it's costly and I know it's it's time consuming to actually share data and certainly legal teams within companies are reticent. The private information sharing piece certainly in the back of GDPR is still developing but I think the approach has got to be if you can share, share it. If you can find a reason to share it, share it because it's, it's to the benefit of the whole community, it's not just for you. The more people involved to share information, to communicate the threats, to find the bugs, whether or not it's the Kirchhoff principle, It seems to work. And that goes for Treasury, too. Here's Beth Petrie again. And this comes back to that key aspect around communication. And not always do we think about how critical the input of the business partner is when it comes to building the technical defensive strategy. Having a CISO sitting side by side with a treasurer is an important part in building the program, as well as continually assessing how effective the program is working for that treasurer. This is Joe Ashley. He's a consultant at Bright9 Limited, a cybersecurity firm that works on cloud and infrastructure. Cybersecurity starts and ends with people, whether it's the people that are helping protect your systems and therefore how it's been put in place, who is ultimately got privileged access to those systems, has it been architected correctly, is it being updated correctly. That's all somebody that a, a person develops a policy around or an activity around. The criminal activity is, is happening from an individual. It all comes down to people. Systems and processes processes and technology will only get you so far and they open up doors and they open up avenues for attack that have never been thought of before but it's being generated by 
people and therefore training, educating and being aware of people's behaviours is as much as important, if not more important than the technologies that are in place. And now we're going to hand it over to the City House View, hosted by Charlie Corbett, Euromoney Specialist Content Editor, and Rod Shinoy, City's Global Head of Digital Security for Treasury and Trade Solutions. Today, we're going to be learning just what the best course of action is when those three words, dreaded by all companies, are one day uttered. We've been hacked. It's 4 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and a corporate treasurer is called by the Chief of Security. Our systems have been breached. What should his or her first action be? So I think as soon as you realize that something's happening, you know, the first matter of business is getting the right people aligned and together and communicating so that you can respond as you learn more. So who is in that first crisis meeting and, and where does the treasurer fit in? So usually it varies by, by organization, but a lot of times uh, you see information technology, information security, legal risk operations, and other areas involved. But from a corporate treasurer perspective, you're going to be looking at and focused on what are your financial systems and what's your potential exposure. So are there any particular um, scenarios in your own experience where, where the, the treasurer has been kind of pivotal uh, in 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 helping to sort out the problem, absolutely. So there were a number of cyber attacks this year and last year um, that have had company wide implications in terms of systems being down. And when those systems are down, there could be opportunities for fraud to take place. And we've worked very closely with our corporate treasury clients to see, you know, what what are the types of actions that they took, and we've learned some things from it as a result. Uh, So one of the things is that it's important to make quick decisions on which systems you want to turn off or on uh, to be able to react to the incident. Uh, So, for example, making uh, bank account access uh, more restricted to fewer individuals than you normally have. You want to be able to work with some of your vendors if you outsource any functions. You want to take an additional look through reports and conduct um, enhanced reconciliation to really identify if there's any indications of fraud or any indications of information having leaked from your treasury system. But the key thing that we found is, and the difference between um, how you react to the incident is that the level of communication, the level of governance can make or break. So we've had you know, clients where headquarters is telling us one thing, but the subsidiary is telling us something else, and we're really trying to connect the dots and help them. Because during a crisis, it's very difficult to make sure you, when your normal methods of communication are gone, that you're as coordinated as you'd like to be. In the fog of war, the fog of the hack, where everyone is confused, there's a lot going on, nobody really knows what's happening. Um, Are there any hard and fast rules that treasurers can follow to stick to in an emergency? The fog of war is a great way of describing it, because during a crisis, everybody's running around, everybody wants to do the right thing and help. Um, But when you don't have a coordinated manner of uh, communicating and making decisions, that's where mistakes can be made, and those mistakes can be make a bad problem even worse. Raj, in your direct experience, what have been the biggest mistakes that companies make? 
I think the biggest difference we've seen and the biggest mistakes are around preparedness, communication, and governance. So when breaches have occurred, the companies that have trained and have designated protocols and have done simulations that really test themselves have been the ones that are able to more effectively respond to an impact. Do you think treasurers take cyber risk seriously enough? I think it's the awareness is increasing. Um, but I think by and large, we, we don't see as much focus on this uh, as, as we'd like. And I think a big part of it is people are optimistic and hope that it's not going to happen to them. And unfortunately, this isn't really an effective way as a, as a deterrent. This podcast was produced, presented, and edited by me, Nell McKenzie, with help and leadership from our head of digital, Chris Hunt, our deputy head of digital, Angelique Bevan. Camille Calvert was our project manager and supervised our marketing rollout. The City House View was reported by Euromoney Specialist Content Editor, Charlie Corbett, and thanks to support from City. For all the latest coverage on transaction services, please visit euromoney.com forward slash transaction services. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you want to get involved in some of our future podcasts, please email podcasts at euromoney.com. If you're feeling really generous, you can leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast channel. And also, don't hesitate to recommend this podcast to any friends and colleagues you know who have a passion for corporate treasury.